Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Inside the Mirror Podcast. Today, I have my friend, Victoria Clare. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, nailed it. Hi, Victoria, how are you? Hi, I'm looking Thank you for coming wonderful. on here. You look tan, like I said, you look tan. It's good, being good. outside a lot. Good, genetics. Like I said, DNA. Yeah. We're just talking about DNA. Yeah, apparently there's some... Uh, French something on my dad's side. We're trying to figure that out. I don't know. You're all European. I know. Well, as soon as I hear French, that kind of scares me. European mind. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's like... probably politically incorrect. <laughs> don't put the Sorry, French in Sorry, French there, people. <laughs> yeah. But no. Go Cowboys, by Chloe, the way. Yeah. Well, this is my lucky shirt. So is I it? have been so far. Why is it lucky? Because we've won when I've been wearing it. It's very new. <laughs> have they lost when you didn't wear it? No, when I didn't wear it, we won. But So maybe they're just winning. Maybe. Maybe I should just stop busting your here. <laughs> I don't know. I've been asked to wear it because it's lucky to somebody else, I, like I guess. So Look, thanks. maybe that that's that could be a real thing. Maybe somebody else gets luck from it. We'll see. Watch. I might be cursing them today now. We'll find out. We're miss- Are we missing the game? Uh, Starts in an hour. Okay, cool. We're good. Let's chat. What's up? Victoria's one of my sober friends. You're my first sober friend to be on the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Which means that there's plenty more to be on the podcast. (laughs) That's awesome. So thanks for being my first sober friend to be on the podcast. Well, I'm honored. Thank you for asking me. Honored and sober. Tell us a little bit about your story. Like, where'd you come from? Obviously, you didn't come from America. Or Australia. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a frequent thing you get. Mm -hmm. Are you from Australia? Yeah, definitely not. I actually had a a guy call um, up to my office the other day, and he's from South Africa. Mm And he thought you were from there. Yeah, no, he thought I was Australian. Oh, he did. And that was the first thing out of his mouth. And he was like, "So, you've been here a while, huh? How long have you been here from Australia?" <laughs> I was like, "Who do you need to talk to?" <laughs> Bye. Sorry, Frank. So, where are you from originally? Been a while, England. England. Cambridge, small village outside of Cambridge called Gamling Gay. Isn't Cambridge? Isn't there Cambridge University? Isn't that the big school there? Oh yeah. Uh huh. Is it? What is that known for? Is it just known as a big school, or is it like a specific school? Isn't it like a mathematician school? It's something like that. I don't know exactly. <laughs> okay. You're from Cambridge. Yes, Cambridge. Okay. So um, That's where you began. Yes. Your life began. So my dad had his own glass engraving company. My mom was a nurse. My dad traveled a lot to America. And um, when I was 16, he kind of was traveling pretty frequently. It was about two weeks of every month as far as my memory serves me, that he was over in the States and um, he was touring with Kiss, which was I remember you told me that. That's super cool. What was he doing with Kiss? Well, he worked with That has nothing to do with his his actual business, did it? No, and he kind of has been one of those people that does a million different things. things. Yep. Go figure. I can relate. (laughs) I'm friends with your dad on Facebook. Are you really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so... um, yeah, it was one of his little side things. He was touring with Kiss and he was working with Kodak and he was helping them make the uh, merchandise. And he started doing it for um, footballers and I think tried to do it with Backstreet Boys at one point. And basically they had like a three seconds of film that they had on this little card. And then when you tilted it, it was... You could see the whole thing. It'd see the motion. So they did it for uh, football games and like the European you know, the football. World. Yeah. 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 Our real football. I just have to, I just have to check. Like, what? Soccer. As we talked about the Cowboys. Soccer, yes, yes. Yes. And so it would be like the winning goal in the World Cup game and you would tilt the card and it would show the kick. And uh, so we started doing it with Kiss. 
And so he would have, I mean, he's got some massive, really cool ones where they were just like the kiss faces just morphing into each other. And then one where you've got, you tilt it and you walk by it because they're so big and you see Gene Simmons' tongue hang out. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, he did uh, he did some really cool things for them. And you said you, we've met them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I remember that. Did yeah, you post like, a picture of that? Didn't you have a picture you showed me? Yeah, it was yeah. Steve Tyler. That and you was and your brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, it. we went when uh, Kiss came to Dallas and they were touring with Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who do you like more, Kiss or Aerosmith? Uh, that's a tough one. Well, I, I kind of I, right I grew up like loving Aerosmith songs, but like Kiss is just I, it's a different ballgame. So that's now. your choice. I don't know. I They're listening. <laughs> Steven. Steven, <laughs> you heard you've been betrayed. I can't pick. I love them both. Okay, fair, fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll let that be. But we have like a family connection with Kiss, right? You know, that makes like sense. Like going backstage and stuff. Like I remember like being super starstruck once. Uh, I think we went to San Antonio, and we went backstage, and I was I remember just walking down the hallway, and then each member was in the room getting their makeup done, and then Peter Chris was like, "Oh my, there's my favorite girl," and. You know, they would just know me as so Kiss is Martin's. Your yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> we got to the bottom of it eventually. Okay, after all that, how did you get here? So that was how. That, oh, your dad's was, business. Yeah, he was traveling over to the States a lot. Mm-hmm. And then he got involved with a dot-com company that kind of promised him the world and said, why don't... That was typical at the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 2001. So they said... That was perfect you know, timing, though, to get into web businesses. That was literally yeah. like the boom, like 2000. But it didn't last long. No? About what happened? six months. Really? Oh, I think so. Did they give them empty promises or what? Oh, yeah. I mean, they had all this money and they were taking private jets everywhere and going on all these holidays with all their employees Looked and then legit. just went bankrupt. Really? Yeah. So they weren't building a business. They were just spending money they raised. Pretty much, yeah. That happened a lot back then. Yeah. Like I, I listened to a lot of, I listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of business podcasts. And uh, one I was listening to recently, they were talking about the internet boom. There was guys that would have these great ideas, and there was so much money that they were infusing into capital to all these uh, web ideas. So these guys were getting like $25 million, $20 million, $30 million, and then they were running through and blowing it because they didn't actually like put it into their business. Yeah. And they were going bankrupt just like that. Yeah, was exactly That's crazy. I was did. just listening to that. Yeah, they were like, we've got all this money. But you have to spend it on your business. It's not for you. Yeah, so we... They, yeah, they just basically came to him and said, we'll pay for you and your family to move. And um, this was, we moved in February of 2001. And How old were you at the time? I was 16. How did you feel about leaving your entire country? It was awful. Was it? Yeah, it was horrible. I didn't want to go. I'm not really sure if any of us did, honestly. I mean, I know for my mom leaving, you know, being a nurse and leaving where she was, it was just. That's a huge change to leave a country. Massive. Yeah. Like even though we all speak English, like the different cultures, you have well, to cross the big pond. We were in a village. Oh, that's like, right. And then I moved here and I'm in Plano. Dallas, Fort Worth, like 7 million people. <laughs> exactly. Like my graduating class in high school was the population of the village I grew in. Oh, how, what was the number? In. I think it was 1300 the year I graduated, something like that. And that was like the that. population of your hometown? About the time that I was there, yeah. I mean, we didn't even have traffic lights. I'm sure it's changed a lot, but it was literally just a crossroads in a village. 
and there was a school and four pubs. So the pub crawl was around the village. That's how, <laughs> that's how you got around. Easy crawl. You start from one side, make your way around, and then you're home. Easy. I didn't have to no drive. No Uber, no Lyft. No. You get on the bus to the train stop. Easy to become train. an alcoholic. Yeah. No. So then I get here and I'm living in Richardson and I'm like, okay, there's highways around. Like I can't even walk to the gas station. It was crazy. So it was a big Shocker, adjustment. Huh? Yeah. I think my dad still has the picture that he took for my first visa. And I've got this thick black eyeliner under my eyes and I'm just staring at the camera and just like, I hate you. <laughs> and so he just takes this picture for my, uh, for my first visa. But yeah, I did not, I didn't want to move. I didn't want to leave everyone. Sure. I, had a, I had a boyfriend back then, mm-hmm. you know, oh, obviously like madly in love at the time. Of course. And tried that for a little bit. Long distance didn't work out so well. Um, That's the longest distance. It's pretty like i one time i dated my girlfriend lived in utah one time and i thought that was long but like we weren't separated by the entire ocean and six hour time difference like you're never awake at the same time that's commitment at a young age too i would have been like sorry sarah well it was like you know (laughs) this isn't our fault yeah i just had to move let's see how it i'll be back soon yeah and i did at the beginning i did travel back a Uh lot to begin with were you still dating this young man for a little bit yeah yeah, we went back a couple of times the first year. We had, But then we realized that it was a lot easier for everybody to come see us. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the house and the pool. Yeah. It was a holiday for them. What was your dad doing? Was he? Did he go back to working with Kodak? No, he went to life insurance. Oh, okay. American Income Life was uh-huh. when he went with that company instead. I think he did a couple in between. And he, he's still with them? No. He's not? What no, does he do now? He works for Avexius. Man, he is just a jack of all trades. Yeah, I know. I know he's a businessman. His Facebook picture is like business suit, Sharp, fresh, right? yeah, he's a good looking dude. <laughs> Shout out, what's his name? Martin. Martin, that's right, Martin. Yeah. Mr. Martin. I know it's funny. He used to come to uh, preschool. Freshman. Good pick, genetics. Pick up Chloe from school sometimes, and all the older teachers are like, oh, "That's your dad. He's so cute." Look, you can't beat genetics. I know. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I have a friend. One of my best friends had a crush on my dad. They know who they are. No. Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, she's, well, she's younger than me. My dad is, what, 61? Shout out to my dad. Yeah. That's I mean, you can't help it when you have pretty parents. Yeah. I'm just thankful that something trickled down. <laughs> you should be too. Yeah, I know. But sometimes the genetics kind of get you too. Well, that's... Not the physical it's genetics. It's more like story, the inter- yeah. like your internal genetics. Yes, yeah. That those addictive personalities that we got. Oh yeah. <laughs> you were telling me last time we hung out about like how your addiction started. Like not to get super deep now, but yeah. let's get super deep. Okay, let's do it. Well, I mean, I kind of because you have an interesting story because you started so young. Yeah. Well, that was the thing was you know I kind of realized this. I've been asked to share my story a couple of times at some groups, and I kind of just planning for that was pretty much impossible for me because I was given the advice of here, you know, plan it out, get bullet points. It was pretty much just like polar opposites. Plan it, have a speech, have bullet points you want to hit, go up there. And I don't do well reading from a script for anything. Me neither. And so I'm like, I don't even like really like it was my sponsor's advice too. Mm -hmm. And then other people that I look up to and I was like, I love you and everything, but that's just not going to work for me. Like, I'm going to go up, up there. I'm going to fumble Talk. my words. And um, 
I not that long ago did that speech at the city council of Frisco. Right. Where I went up to talk. They're trying to get sober living houses in Frisco. And it was a social worker that had come to visit the sober living in Salina. And so she asked me to speak on behalf of, you know, my experience in Oxford. And I didn't plan at all for that. And how did it go? And it was amazing. Good. And there were no nerves. But the only nerves I had was sitting next to her reading through her script because she had a script and she was freaking out was she and then that was when i was like this is why i don't need to do this and she goes i can't believe you you cause yourself more stress i'm like you're getting yourself worked up right now we do that yeah and so you know i just but some people need that like some people aren't like you're a good communicator some of that's natural like talking about genetics yeah some of that's just genetic Right. Like some of us are just outspoken, outgoing. We're not nervous around people. Some people need that as like a safety net. Right. See, for me, it would have worked I'm the with absolute you. opposite, though. It would have made me get... And then, then I would have been like, well, I should have said this. And, I, and then I'm lost. Oh, I missed this bullet point. Yeah. <sighs> so for me... It's more authentic when you just go up and tell your story. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm just going to speak from the heart. And, you know, I've... I've grown a lot in the last couple of years, but like a big thing that I have found in myself is that, you know, I've got a different purpose now. And I really, truly believe that God is working through me in certain ways. And so that was kind of a peaceful thing for me to be like, okay, God's going to speak through me. So whatever comes out, I'm supposed to say it. And there's supposed to be someone that's like, someone's going to hear something that they need to hear. And that's it. You let go of control. So I, yeah, exactly. Which is hard. That's exactly what I was just about to say. I was like, once you, lo- you let go of the control of it, it just flows. And, you know, I mean, I got down and I was like, I really don't remember everything that I said. You had stage and blackout. And I listened back <laughs> to it afterwards and I was like, okay. But, you know, there were so many people that came up. There was even a guy as I was walking out of the room came and grabbed me afterwards and was like, oh my God, that was amazing. I've got to give you my number. I want to work with you. And I mean, you know, you never know just speaking from the heart how how many people, you know, kind of need to hear that. And if it's scripted, it's not authentic right. in my opinion. And you, you limit your impact. Yeah. When you read a story to somebody that you've written down, you limit your impact because people can feel emotions. Like if you're just up there talking authentically, people can feel your emotion. Mm-hmm. Like remember that guy that talked at uh, Recovery and Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and Recovery? Oh, Tim what Ryan. What was his name? Yeah, Tim Ryan. That guy was not reading a script. Yeah, no kidding. And you could feel like the things he was saying. You got drawn into the emotion. Then you got excited when he was excited. Yeah. Like he conveyed everything authentically. It's a, and if you have, I think if you have that ability, do it because you're going to impact more people. Yeah, I think so too. Because people know when you're reading a script. People know when you're standing here and you're looking down at this thing, versus when it's like. Mm, Plus, it was it was just like sometimes certain thi- like especially when I was sharing my story and I did it once in a room where I only knew two people, and then I did it in a room where I had a lot of close friends of mine. And I was able to be more authentic with them and really talk about some of the darker side of things. But I also knew some things that they could relate to that I'm like, okay, this is my chance to actually speak about how I got out of that and how I came out on the other side. Because that's why we share the message, right? Is to help somebody else. I know my story. So if I'm just going up there just talking about, yeah everything that I do on a daily basis, that doesn't do anything. It's like, what was the hell that I walked through? How did I walk through it? How did I come out the other side? And how can I empower somebody else to do the same? 
and this is something that that I truly believe. Like everybody has a different story, and it's okay for some people that don't feel comfortable sharing their story. But at some point, like you have to get outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. I understand people get nervous, and people are like, "It's really personal," and this. And I'm super empathetic to that. But at some point, like for other people, because again, we don't do it for ourselves. For right. other people, you got to take a chance. You got to risk it, even if you have to write it down. Like. You never know the one person that's going to be impacted. Right. Because I may tell my story and no one can relate. And then the next guy may tell a story and everyone's like, that. I, I did that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's just powerful when people share their story. Even if they're like nervous about it, it's not something they're comfortable with. It's helpful. Yeah. Like we just got lucky because it doesn't make us nervous. Yeah. But we even if it did, we should still be doing it. Mm-hmm. There's power in sharing your story. Even if you weren't a drug addict. Even if you struggled with something totally different. You had an anxiety issue as a kid. You were bullied. Like, whatever it is. Like, people need to speak up more. We live in this culture that's so, like, individualized. Like, stay in your little box. We don't want to hear about this. And and we, I think people really want each other to talk. And I really think most people want to talk. But culture just makes us feel like nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Or, you know, they don't, they don't understand. Or, you know? Yeah. Culture, our culture has told everyone, shut up. You know, don't talk about type of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I went to a meeting this week and they were talking about the uh, third tradition for AA and about how, you know, it's only basically the only thing that you need to be involved in AA is the desire to stop drinking. And like way back when, when they started writing all this, there was all this upheaval with people that were coming in and, you know, identifying themselves as alcoholic and an addict. But it was really interesting for everybody to share. And my home group is Prosper Country Group up in uh, Prosper. Shout out to them. Yeah. That place saved my life without a doubt. Um, So I was in a bad shape in January when I moved up there. And if I hadn't found that group, it was the missing piece of the triangle for me. It was a fellowship. It was everything that I needed at the perfect time. January this past year? Yeah. No, Mm -hmm. this year. This year? Yeah. 2019. Yeah. January is when I moved up there. To that point, people, some people do not understand. And I try to reiterate it. Like getting sober doesn't fix you. Oh, no. That's just the first step, man. Sometimes it makes things a lot worse. (laughs) 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 You're like, I mean, for oh a short God, amount of time. Now, now it's real life right. and well, real feelings. Well, you you take away the Band-Aid. Oh, yeah. Of the wound. Whatever you're dealing with. Like, you rip that Band-Aid off and then, ooh, here's reality. Like, here it is. Yeah. It's like you like when you have a deep cut and you take a Band-Aid off and, like, the air hits it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my, that would be one of my ways to describe getting sober. For me, I came back and was like, oh, it's like the air just hit me. Like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, God, this is way worse than I thought it was. I did not know I built this so badly. Yeah, I had something a few months ago that really got me. Uh And um, I'm probably going to butcher it because I don't remember exactly how it was said. But it was, you know, I was focusing on the Band-Aids when really I needed to look at the bullet holes. Mm. And that was the thing for me. It was like I was Band-Aiding everything. But like once I got to the root of my problem, there was like then everything became easier. It was like then I didn't need to numb my pain. Then I knew exactly what I had to deal with and what I had to focus on and the healing from the within. None of that stuff ever comes up. I mean, I'm sure it will and it has. But for the most part, like I've got tools now. Mm-hmm. It's just like I mean, it's like when you have 
like when I had anybody, when you have a major surgery, like you're fixing the root issue. Like you can go get medications to kind of like mask things and like keep your symptoms calm or like put band-aids and bandages to kind of keep things in control. But if you never get surgery, if you have a deep wound, you never get surgery, like it's never getting fixed. It's always there, you know? It's like somebody who has like a, I know I use crazy examples. If you have a stomach riddled full of cancer, like there are things you can do to make yourself comfortable and there are things that you can do to kind of like uh, lessen the symptoms, but you will always have cancer unless you get it removed. And it's just like our issues and whatever drives us to drink and use, like those issues are there until you deal with them. We use alcohol and drugs. Those are our band-aids. I know this is basic, but some people don't still don't understand that. You can say all day, you just need to get to the root issues, and people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. no thanks, not for me. Yeah. But it is. You have to get to the root cause of your issues. Why are you doing this? Yeah. Or people die. People die yeah. every day. We know this. Yeah. Addiction isn't people like the opioid epidemic, and I'm like, I think it's, a, it's deeper than that. The, the opioid epidemic is because of what? Right. That's people's solution right exactly. now because of everything else that right. they're dealing with. But people like to just blanket statement. The opioid epidemic. Well, don't you think it's deeper? Maybe like a disconnection epidemic? Maybe like a lack of kindness epidemic? Like that podcast I, I was talking about. And when you posted that same thing, which that was, was crazy. Nuts. It was crazy because I posted that or I didn't post it. It was uploaded. Uh-huh. And then within an hour, I was on Facebook and you were saying the exact same thing. <laughs> what did that post say that you said? It was just about... Uh, about kindness. Yeah, about being kind. And I was like, it really doesn't take a lot of effort. It's free. Like, just go out of your way and try and do something nice for somebody else today. But then... Say like, hi. Even when I... And I couldn't wait till I got home. So I went out and listened to it on my lunch break. And it was just like, we were literally saying the same thing. It's like, smile at a stranger. Hold the door open for someone. Like, it really doesn't take a lot of effort it's not hard work but you never know like at countless times i have made random conversations with people or you know given someone a compliment like i remember um going to the store and at the checkout and i said something to one of she was a young girl and she looked really really sad and i remember saying something just like you've got a really beautiful smile and she teared up and she was like that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me and I'm just like, okay, if that just one... Con- and I, it was genuine, though. I really meant it, obviously. Sure. I'm not just like, oh, she looks like she's sad. I'm going to, you know... I'm going to make something I'm up. I'm going to make something up to make her smile. Like, right. here's me trying to empower you and make you feel good. And, like, her face just completely changed. It was like she just lit up. And it took... It takes... what? Uh, it takes no 3% of our body's effort to smile and say something. But the impact on somebody is like, you can't measure it. Like you saying that took no effort. It took a little bit of kindness, but you have a lot to give, right? It's free. But you don't know what that did for that girl. Like, I don't like to say crazy things, but I do say crazy things. What if that girl was going to go home and kill herself? Exactly. You never That's know. extreme, but like, that's the world we live in. People are doing it every day. And so that's why I say, like, you can say all day there's this opioid epidemic. I agree. But why? Like, people like to just leave it there. Well, it's the bullet hole. <laughs> exactly. Why are people out here on opioids? Why do we have such a huge... It's it's an addiction epidemic. Because if you're not addicted to opioids, you're addicted to alcohol. You're addicted to yourself. You're addicted to social media. Like You're addicted to escape. You're addicted to the yeah, band-aids. Khalid, Just pick your flavor. Songs. He was like, this is more like an apocalypse. And <laughs> it's true. You know, Chad Kalichi. Yeah. That's a great statement. It is. It is. Like, just because... 
and and it's you know addicts it may look like their lives are just crazy and just so wrecked because they're on drugs or that's a crazy they're on drugs like yeah but like you're over here addicted to whatever you're addicted to and you're doing the same thing you may not have the same effect on your body physically but people are out here addicted to everything addicted to money they're addicted to themselves they're addicted to their likes like people are addicted to everything Everyone's an addict now. The beautiful thing about recovery, and it's not sobriety for me anymore, it's recovery Mm -hmm. because there's a lot more things that, um, you know, I had to focus on. And going back to that meeting I was talking about, you know, they were saying about how, um, you know, you had to just have the desire to stop drinking. Well, for me, in my experience, what made me feel more at home in that group especially was the fact that everybody was open about everything. And nobody was judged and nobody was asked to leave. And it was literally the first time in a long time. And I'd been in two Oxford homes. And here I am running this house by myself in the middle of friggin' nowhere. No, I mean, I've you went there. up there. That was cool. It was a cool area. <laughs> it is. It's but a dope location. It gets, it gets pretty Lonely. creepy out there at sure. night and coyotes howling and spiders and scorpions and snakes and oh my it was ridiculous but you know to go to a place like that and feel that you're accepted was huge but that you're not alone and it was like for me it was never just drinking too much ever like no matter how far back i look there was always a root issue to it. Sure. Somewhere along the way, whether it was a family thing, whether it was, you know, me and all the stuff that I was dealing with. I mean, when everything came to become an issue for me and when I realized that it was causing problems and like, okay, I really have a problem, that was after Chloe was born. And it was the realization of, thanks to my granddad, my mom and I talk about this all the time, that... He basically told me, uh, you're the goose that laid the golden egg. And I kind of realized that I had been, I was like, okay, this is the only reason I was around. The goose that laid the golden yeah, egg. Yeah. Like, okay, he's got the kid. Now we're, told me like, we're done. Mm-hmm. And I knew it, but I still stuck it out. But I stuck it out by medicating myself through alcohol because I was miserable. Mm-hmm. I started having really bad panic attacks. I had PTSD, like a mofo just from, I mean, there was extensive psychological and emotional abuse that I wasn't even aware of until I got out. No idea. It was everything that I knew. I mean, like, we and just, how many was, stories are there out there like that? Yeah. It's so common. But if yeah. people don't talk about it, then you're in, then you're exactly. in danger. Exactly. And Isolation like, even my sponsor now, she, um, she had a history with an, an abusive narcissistic ex. So she helps me on a different level with the one person that will make me spiral around the axle at the drop of a hat. Even today, try to a little bit. You won though. You know, but it's like, I don't have to be that way anymore. And never anymore for the longest time does, you know, numbing it come across my mind. So you don't and even have thoughts about that anymore? I mean, I think about it in a way of like, damn, I'm never going to be able to do that again. But it's not a sad thing because I, I'm i very good at flipping the script in my own head. Self-talk. Because I know how it'll end up if I don't. And it was kind of what I was saying the other day about uh, 
a comment i think it was on finding the positive in every negative like that's something that i had to drill in my own head and it's something that i teach chloe a lot too because i mean you know how much drama they go through in elementary school man i mean sometimes it's the end of the world and she comes home and there's just girl drama and this and that and i'm just like all right just pause what are you grateful for and she's it's like she struggles to find something and i'm like well i got off work early to pick you up today you know you get to go home to a house this you know you've got a home you've got family that love you like just check it like not everything is always as bad as you think it is right but that was me for the longest time i just thought when you're just stuck in that view and you can't see outside of it right people could tell you all day you have this and you have family and you you you're loved and you have clothes and food and all you see is just no but this bad 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 yeah but it takes practice like you and me like it's taken us practice when i first got sober man i was a jerk I was mad and angry and violent still. Like, I don't see that. Well, you didn't know me then. <laughs> <laughs> Call my ex. Tanil knows. <laughs> Ask my parents. <laughs> but, I mean, it, everything takes practice. Anything yeah. you want to be good at takes practice. And I think people, uh, well, I had, I had a false, uh, I kind of had this false sense of like when I got sober, like, okay, thank God, then I'll be better. Because I knew I was sick. At the end, I knew I was sick and I was ruining people's lives, ruining my own life. But I was affecting a lot of people. And I thought, like, if I go do this, I go do this rehab thing and get clean, it'll fix it. Like, I'll just be like, oh, I thought it would be a weight off my shoulders. And as you know, like you were saying, like, it was a, a weight on my shoulders. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, this is going to take work. <laughs> oh, man. But it's like at that point, you really have to make a choice. Like, for me, at least, that was a point where I went to rehab and I spent a month there. When I got out, I was like, okay, I'm either going to do it or I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to partially, you know, I'm either doing it or I'm not. And so I had to make a choice. And so I made the choice. And then soon after that, I moved here to get away from some stuff. And it's a, it's a, ba- it's a long battle. The first year for me was the worst. What about you? Well, this is not my first rodeo. So oh, I right. first got sober in 2014. Um, we separated... Chloe's dad and I separated. What do you call him? The husband. <laughs> Is that what you're going for? Yeah, the husband. I got tired of saying ex, ex everything, ex husband, husband. He was my husband. Um, yeah. So the husband and I, funnily <laughs> enough, we met on Thanksgiving 18 years ago, and then we separated on Thanksgiving six years ago. That way you can be thankful. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thankful for the removal of him now. <laughs> And, um, oh yeah. So, um, yeah, but it was, it was weird. And I didn't, yeah, because, and here's the reason why I wasn't doing it for the right reason. Even though I thought I was, I didn't realize until I spent a couple of years suffering and came back and started recovery and not sobriety, how wrong I was doing everything. Why were you doing it? Well, through the divorce. Okay. So we had a 15 month, very just high drama, volatile, just ugly, nasty, like reality show worthy divorce. Like it's when the motto for my life, you can't make this shit up. Like you literally couldn't. Like people would ask me what would happen just on a random day of mine. Like they're like, you can't write this. Like you literally couldn't. 
Um, but it was my attorney that recommended that I start going to meetings and that I get sober. For the divorce. For the divorce. Because, um, you know, here was my chance to not have anything against me going in court with somebody who was on drugs, was failing drug tests, and was trying to take my child away from me. And the sad thing was, well, there's many, but we found out that his attorney was friends with the judge. So it was just a corrupt wow. justice system. Wow. And there were, I mean, even to this day, I... Shout out to the system. Yeah. Ugh. That was, uh, you know, it was, it was an eye-opening experience of how money can have power in certain situations and in a lot of situations and it was it was quite scary because chloe was four at the time and we get drug tests and everything is there in black and white and no possession was changed and i'm doing everything that i can on my part and it it's just being laughed at by him he's like well how do i you know like signatures for meetings and i'm taking voluntary drug tests every two weeks for two years and he's like well i don't even, i don't even know that that's real saying that there were no safeguards in place and like i'm literally doing everything i can documentation to yeah, yeah. to not just prove that i can do this but like okay, you're clearly not in a good place and she needs someone. Like, that I need to be the parent. It shows you the failure the of the system, though. Right. To your point. I need to be system. the parent that is showing up for her. Now I need to get my shit together. And, um, you know, it just it scared the crap out of me because, like, you're really going to send her home to this person who is high on cocaine, you know, and a lot of other things. It, that wasn't just it, but that was the shocking one because it was three times the cutoff level, and he's like 160 pounds, and he said he it was one time use, and they're like, you should you shouldn't even be alive if that's true. And so that's when I first got sober. Yeah. So I was doing it for the divorce. I was doing right. it because everybody told me I couldn't do it. You know, I was trying to prove everybody wrong. That's a classic one, huh? Yep. <laughs> and then as soon as um. The divorce was finalized, all the pressure was off. And I stayed sober for a little bit, and then it just took one thing. And um, I found out that my parents were separating and that there was some drama going on with them, and I didn't really know the whole story. It was a lot of he said, she said, but some infidelity accusations and things like that. And I remember seeing a text message on my dad's phone at dinner one night and I just remember leaving the restaurant and just deciding that I'd going back out like I need to get drunk mm -hmm. I just knew it were you going to meetings did you have any accountability no I stopped so you're still in meeting. a dangerous spot yeah and that was the thing was like it wasn't the recovery it was the sobriety I yeah. was I was a dry drunk yeah. is what they call it right and That's I just was not using that doesn't yeah. mean you're recovering from anything Exactly. I was just staying away from it. Yeah. But I wasn't working the steps properly. You know, I was, it or was so more of a checklist. It was anybody. a checklist. Right. And, you know, like, oh, you're going to have to make amends to your husband. <laughs> well, never doing that. Well, I do so that I just one. leave. <laughs> I'll That's do the classic. easy ones first, you know? That's classic. Exactly. I'm going to do this. Uh -huh. I'm going to do this. Ooh, that one's hard. No, I'm it's not on doing my that terms. One. Yeah, no. I'm not doing that one. <laughs> No, I remember looking at the 12 steps the first time and going, ooh, not, nah. I, same mindset. I'm not doing all that. No. I'm going to do, I mean, I'm, I can I'm do sober a few right of them. now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Powerless for sure. Yeah. Oh yes, God. Okay. Yeah, for sure, God. <laughs> oh no, forgiveness. Nope. Uh, you really screwed me. So, but it's super. Fr- like when you finally make amends, which you guys obviously still have a long ways to go. I mean, no offense. I mean, you just have. It's not your fault. But I mean, you've made amends to a lot of people. I'm sure. For me, I made amends to a lot of people, and it's freeing when you finally do it. Like it's super freeing, even though. You know, even if somebody did you wrong, like a lot of people on my list, I was not all 95% of the time I was in the wrong, but there's a few people where like, they were obviously in the wrong, but I played a part in it. So I, I went and made amends for my part. And, and in several of those instances, then those people, it's almost like I instigated a thought in them, a little bit of guilt maybe. Because they're like, man, like I was wrong, but he said he was sorry for what he did, you know. Yeah. And so it's like this chain reaction, just like kindness. Like, yeah. there's a chain reaction to doing them. the right thing. Yeah. That like there's a ripple effect when you do the right Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Even if you don't see immediate benefits, like yeah. being kind, you don't know what happened with that girl, and you never will. But that's okay because you did the right thing. But again, it's very basic. Like doing the right thing is super basic. Say hi to people. Smile. Mm-hmm. That we're going off track, but that's just my <laughs> rant. You know, I'm a ranter. I love it. Yeah. Anyways, so, um, so you went back on the train. So I did. Hop right and back. Yeah, it it was interesting because I didn't tell anyone. Hmm, and so that's dangerous. I didn't want anyone to know. Yeah. I kind of and I was a teacher at the time, so I had the flu a few times and um I I was a cycle binge drinker so because of my custody i had every other weekend Mm -hmm. where i had no responsibilities so that's kind of how it went with me was like okay well let's we got five days i can do whatever the hell i want then i gotta get back to you know being normal and um yeah i mean now obviously i know that everybody knew because i just isolated and stop talking to everyone and you know we don't understand that people see the signs yeah they may not like have a picture of you with a bottle Uh but like you've given them the evidence like no i had it all covered nobody knew anything they just thought we think people are stupid as we act stupid (laughs) exactly no you're stupid yeah no so that lasted a while and then um i kind of got back to okay i need to do some things different got back into the group got back to why we just sick of it or what yeah, well, I realized that it was, you know, I'd let it. Be an it was the guilt and the shame that's like really hit and set in once I came clean to everybody, and I was like, okay, I can, I know I've done this before because I I think I made it a year and a half. Not, I I'm the longest sober now that I've ever been though, and uh, how long? Uh, it'll be eighteen months on the first. Nice, good for you. Oh yeah, not too long now. We're almost there. Um. But yeah, I I thought I had had about eighteen months, and then uh, my lovely Facebook time hops popped up, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm definitely drunk in that picture." Oops! <laughs> so whoopsie! Thanks, Facebook. Um, yeah, so it was a little less than a year and a half, but um, yeah, but then I had the wonderful intervention of my parents and boyfriend at the time in 2016. Really that uh showed up at my apartment i was you know locked away in a blackout and didn't want to talk to anyone and they showed up and they're like we're taking you to treatment and i was like the hell you are (laughs) and uh you got the wrong one yeah they packed up my bags i went to Carrollton springs and i was there for two weeks and i came home biggest mistake ever right on your own accord oh yeah but i didn't know anything different 
Never heard of Sober Living. Never heard of Oxford. And... What you, did, was those two weeks, was it completed treatment? Yeah. Like they released you? They wanted me to... There was like IOP and PHP and all these other things that, of course, I was like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do it all. Well, my focus was I've got a dog and a daughter and a job and an apartment. Mm -hmm. And this is how this experience has worked in my life today was because I've actually been able to go to treatment centers when I was having that sober living in um, Salina. And I was talking to women that were going to do exactly that. And there was one girl that actually came to our house and she said, I've got a dog and I've got an apartment and I'm a teacher. And I burst Ooh. into tears and I was like, you're me. And I said, I'm just asking you and I'm begging you, like, I'll do whatever I can to get you into my house. Please don't go back to your apartment. I was like, that was the end of me. And I didn't realize it. But that was the biggest mistake I made. So I went home. And just went right back into, you know, replace one addiction for another. So now I'm like hardcore into work again. And uh, it lasted about three or four months. And then I went to help a friend who was struggling and um, left from work. And I was sober and he got into a bar fight in Plano somewhere. And I went and picked him up and was like, you can crash on my couch until, you know, you calm down. And I ended up drinking that night. And I kind of drank a little bit like over a few weeks before then, but nothing to like send me off into that, you know, dark place that it usually did. And then, um, yeah, then the next day I, uh, I was assaulted and um, it was a Lyft driver. And that was that was the end of all for me. That was when I was like, because I've still got you know, a bump from it that will never go away. But that was when I was like, okay, I cannot live with this anymore. And um, sometimes it takes like three, four or five rock bottoms. Yeah. Six. That, that was mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I didn't get out of it right away. And that's the scary thing. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, you hit rock bottom and then you get help. Not for me. Not always. It was one year and 10 days until I got because rock bottom can change mm -hmm. it it can get deeper well because it wasn't just that it was mm -hmm. after that that was may of may 20th of 2017 and um you know then i had to put my dog down it was my last dog and then uh my mom was having her struggles and um problems compounded it was it was one thing after another and then um yeah, and then my best friend died, and I was, I was like, that was it. And so I just kind of, that that was the only way that I knew how to handle things at that time was to numb it. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, the trauma that I experienced is something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Um, I wasn't sleeping. And when I was, um, I, I moved in with one of my best friends just because I had nowhere else to go because the incident happened in my apartment. So I couldn't go back. That, right, that's not safe. And they couldn't find him for six months. So right. I was in I that, that that living trauma of, and of course, you know, I hear the the one voice tell me, well, you, you can't be there with Chloe. He's going to come back and kill you. Who knows where you live? Right. That's all I heard. Right. Every single day for about seven months, he's coming to kill me. And um, so that was just how I lived. And I had to figure out a way to basically survive. I was in survival mode, but... 
I prayed every night that I wouldn't want to wake up. I said, just please let me be, let me just go peacefully in my sleep and I would wake up. And it was almost every day for a year. And were you, you were sober at this time? No. You were not? On okay. and off. No, well, um, I had a few seizures that were induced by really? anxiety. Uh-huh. And so there were a couple of times where I had to go to the emergency room and um, they gave me Ativan and they gave me Clonopin and they were giving me anything and everything that they could. Well, that scared me. So I just wouldn't take all that. Well, then the anxiety would get so bad. And then I started smoking pot. And that was the only thing. That was when I finally was like, okay, now I can kind of understand what all these people are talking about with the medicinal side of it. Because I wasn't eating. Weed is not all bad. I wasn't sleeping. No one can say that weed is all bad. And I was paranoid. People hate me for that. And that's fine. I was paranoid as hell before. So it didn't make me more paranoid. It made me eat mm-hmm. and sleep and actually start taking care of myself. A lot of benefits to smoking pot. I'm not saying you should smoke pot. No, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> but, being an advocate for it. No, but in but my experience, that there are pros to it. I mean, I just think if I didn't have that, God knows where it would have ended. Because there was... There was a time. There's a time for everything. Yeah. People can judge all they want, but like... There's no rules to this. Yeah. Life. Like... I mean, there is, but like this, like this sobriety game, like if something works for a period of time, like it works. Mm-hmm. I know people that got clean off of everything, but they needed to smoke some weed mm-hmm. and they did. And it helped them through, to, through a lot of recovery. Yeah. I'm not saying you smoke weed forever. You shouldn't. I don't think you should. But I do think there are benefits to that, but it's so taboo in the it is. sober community, which is fine. Yeah. I'm not afraid of people's opinions. Like I don't care about your opinions. I've just seen it work, so you can't yeah. tell me something doesn't work exactly. when I've seen it work. Yeah. You can't tell me that. We have to be more empathetic to people, like to your situation. Some people are like, you were smoking pot? It helped her. Show some empathy. My I wasn't, God. Well, and, the, and here's this the alternative. This is such a legalistic view. Right. But the alternative to me in that point Was in have time, another seizure. Or, or pop a bunch get of Klonopin. Klonopin. Right. <laughs> I'm like, hang on a minute. But because the doctor said it's okay, you yeah. can take these pills that are so drugged. So here's something that is probably not going to be addictive. Is not going to... People got to think. I'm like, uh-uh. And I've got people in my family that have been a, a, like mixing pills and alcohol. And I'm, I I'm like, I don't want to go down that road. I had prescriptions for Klonopin and Xanax while I was drinking. Never once did I smoke pot and have the same experiences when exactly. I was popping pills. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm I'm not being mean. I'm not being aggressive. People I'm, are I'm actually taking care of myself. So, people yeah. People got to think for I, themselves. I, I was not sober, but... In my experience, that but was... But you were okay for a minute. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Even though it may not be have been maybe the best choice, but at the time, like, you had to... When you're reaching for everything, you got to make the best choice possible. Yeah. It may not be the one that's the most popular with everybody, but that's okay. Yeah. Like, you got to reach for whatever you can. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, okay, well, I, I'm either going to be drinking and taking pills where I'm going to get addicted and I'm not going to feel good or I'm like this bush on maybe fire. I'll be able to eat dinner tonight and go to sleep eat the early. Dinner. Like choose the dinner. <laughs> Burn know? the tree. Exactly. So, yeah. But then, um, you know, it's just one thing after another until I finally got to the point where um, it was drink as much as I possibly could 
with bottles of pills next to my bed, waiting to have the guts to go through with it. Oh, it's really what dark it was. Place. And um, I didn't put this together until I was nine months sober when I sat down with a lady because I had, um, when I moved, I've had to change sponsors quite a bit because I've moved. And I had a sponsor in Salina, um, but she does Celebrate Recovery. And she love it. Shout out to Celebrate Recovery. Yes. Love it, love it, love it. She runs a Frisco group. And so she advised me to work through the book with somebody else. And so I sat down with her and um, she had asked me if I'd ever, if I ever had recollection of a moment where I'd prayed for something and I'd got the answer to it. And I said, no, just, I mean, just flat out, like, no, never. Nope. Well, then we started talking about it and I remembered. So the day that I went to treatment, I remember that was that was it for me. Like I I thought there was no way out. So that week I had been living with somebody but lying to him about when I was drinking and eating. So I wasn't eating. I don't think I'd eaten a proper meal in maybe a month, 3 weeks. And I would claim that I had but I didn't cuz I didn't want to. And then I would drink and I had it hidden everywhere. You know, we're very sneaky. Of course, he knew. We think you're sneaky. Again, exactly. we think we're smart. Yeah. Real dumb. And, um, well, my body started shutting down. And I couldn't walk. I yeah, you have to put nutrients in your body to live. Yeah. That's how it works. So Science. I was I was at the bottom of it all. And I'm like, I can't move. I can't, I'm stuck in this bed. There's no way out. Were you working? Or were you literally just stuck in a no. bed? No job, no nothing? No, I was, you know, doing my art and stuff like that right. for my own business. But no, I mean, I stopped doing all the real estate stuff and everything. And so, yeah, but going back to the prayer thing, I remember laying in that bed and I remember crying and praying and saying, I need help. I don't want to die. And I think I fell asleep and then... The next thing I know, the garage door opens and I call them my recovery parents. Jennifer and Don came in and um, my dad had called them and I met her in 2016 at Carrollton Springs. And when I left Carrollton Springs, I was being discharged and they said someone left a gift for you. And everyone was like, what the hell? I didn't get a gift. And she gave me a book and she wrote her number in it and wrote a message. What was the book? don't remember fair i should though shouldn't i this is life There's i've no moved rules. about seven You're times fine. since then um Just curious. i'm sure i still have it somewhere but um yeah she worked for the good mood foundation so it was one of those books that they they hand around and she was one of the first people i called after the incident and so she was you know following me through all of that and helping me through and taking me to church and they came over and they came and sat at the end of the bed and she was like, you know, we're going to have to get you to a hospital. I think you've got a brain bleed because this concussion that I had in the year before knocked me out, but also caused a lot of issues after that. I had memory loss. I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what time it was. Um, amnesia. It's amnesia, right? Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like I actually drove to school at 7 p.m. thinking it was 7 a.m. Like, knocked your brain around bizarre yeah and i i wasn't drinking uh-huh. and that's how off i was right. from this and so she was convinced i had a brain bleed and that's why my legs weren't working but of course i didn't tell her like, i have no, no nutrients I, i've been drinking straight liquor 
for three weeks and I have haven't eaten. Like my body's like I was I was dying basically. Did she think you were sober at the time? No. Oh, okay. And I don't think I was. Right. I mean, obviously, but um and she just sat with me and they called nine one one and I had about fifty EMTs in my room and I just remember laying there and I was like, guys, is this really necessary? Like I've got a cop over here and then I've got like ten firemen over me in the bed. That's some women's dream. And- <laughs> I know. I'm just saying. It should have been, but not at that point. Wrong timing. Yeah. Wrong time, boys. Yeah. Sorry. Come back when I'm sober. <laughs> and so they sent a few of them out and all my mm. vitals were fine. They mm. went on their way. And so she's like, okay, we've got to do something. Like, you're going to die here. And I'm like, I know this point. All right. And, I was um, just praying about that. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you say that. <laughs> But, um, you know, she just sat on the bed and talked to me. And I finally, you know, talked about Chloe. And I had, I did the exact same thing that I did the year before when I was thinking about it. And I I put Chloe's picture on my bedside table. And that's what kept me alive. Because I just knew that. It's like a last hope. You need something to cling on to. Here I was, and this is the irony of it all, was that I was killing myself over the death of my best friend and her leaving her daughter. And I was about to do Do the the exact same thing. And that's kind of what snapped me out of it too, was that I'm going to leave her and she doesn't deserve that. Right. Like as much as I hate myself, I couldn't even look in the mirror without wanting, literally wanting to smash the mirror. Like I hated my own reflection. I couldn't stand it. I was just disgusted with myself, but I just, there was so much hate. And I didn't like as much as I didn't want to live, I didn't want to die because of everybody else around me. I knew that my parents hadn't done anything to deserve this. My brother hadn't done anything. My daughter hadn't done anything. And I knew as much as I thought everybody hated me, I knew that there were a lot of people out there that cared about me. Look at the two people that just came over to my house and are sitting on my bed asking to help me in any which way they could. I need to snap out of it. Like there are people that love me and there are people that are going to be really upset if something happens to me. And here are two people proving that. Right. So after a few hours, I said, can you take me back to Carrollton Springs? I said, that's the only experience I've had. I kind of trust it, but I'm just going to do everything different from now on. Right. And let's start packing my bags because I'm not coming back here. Yeah. And that was it. And I went in and they didn't have a bed ready for me. We had a seven hour admissions. I was in a wheelchair, dude. Really? Yeah. Because your body shut down? My legs would not work. And even when I was sober in treatment, I was still in a wheelchair for three days because it took me that long to get my strength strength back. back, Yeah. So, um, yeah, for seven hours we were in there talking. And I remember sitting across for Don, who's like a dad for me. And he's got 31 or 32 years now. And uh, he was like, I think this is the most honest you've ever been. And I was like, well, this is I'm the time. I've come to the end of it, my rope. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing left, Don. Yes. Like, this is why I'm here. I'm not leaving until I get a bed. And I mean it now. And, and another thing for you. it was, absolutely. Yeah. But for me, I needed to be locked away. Mm-hmm. I needed to feel safe for the first time in years. I needed to get to the bottom and figure out these bullet holes, you know, get the therapist, get all of that and like really figure out what was causing me to go down this spiral because 
thankfully there was still a lot of fear in me like even from a young age my mom always really scared me with drugs like really really bad like you don't know what you're getting it's gonna kill you and we did see a lot of people in england die from stuff like that but nothing like it was here and so did you ever try any other drugs i think i asked i mean yeah i mean my ex and i we would go on fish tours and there was pretty much like anything and everything Uh handed out like skittles and there are a lot of things i turned down there are a lot of things that were just a definite no-no like i've never tried cocaine never would meth heroin any kind of needles no smoking stuff chemicals the only thing i smoked was pot but um we did a lot of ecstasy and mushrooms Mm, at shows so but that was again was like we wouldn't just do that and have dinner and go to bed. Right, right, right. It, it was an event. Event drug. You know, yeah. Social. Special occasion drugs, yeah. Exactly. Pop. I used to do a lot of ecstasy and Molly, but it was when, you know, we would go to music shows. And oh, yeah. It was always an event. But I got to a point, though, where I, not not my ex, she was very mad at me, but, like, I was seeking out ecstasy and Molly to do by myself. It got bad where I was like, I want to do this by myself. I'm done doing out, you know. I'm done waiting for the next thing. I'm going to do it right here, right now. And I bought a lot of bad Molly that was not Molly and spent a lot of money. One time I spent 400 bucks on some Molly that ended up not being Molly. And this kid moved out of the state because I was going to kill him. I was in a bad place. I told him, I was like, I'm coming back with a gun. I'm going to kill you like straight up because he wouldn't give me my money. He said he wasn't giving me my money. Then he turned his phone off and all that. And he ended up moving like Iowa or somewhere. He like left the state. So I was going to kill him. Straight up going to kill him. What was it? Do you know? Uh, I think it was shards of meth. Like, I ended up snorting it, and it felt like when I snorted meth. So, like, I'm pretty sure it was just some meth shards. It was horrible. Wow. Yeah. So, that didn't help my anger because I was methed out. But <laughs> we do crazy things when we're not in the oh, right mindset, man. Yeah. Like, it, addiction will take you to, it would, turns you into an animal. It does. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. I, I was an animal, I, not a person. I don't. I don't know what it was that kept that fear alive in me, but I I do know now with a clear head looking back that the amount of pain that I was in, if somebody had come to me and say, this will make you feel better. We take it. Like you, I would have. Of course. In a heartbeat. Right. It's, so the ne- it's another band-aid. That was another reason why I isolated so much. Mm-hmm. And another thing too, I've got an addictive personality. Some of us do. I already know that. That is a genetic like, thing. Even though I'm sober, like I get addicted to a lot of things. Me too. And it's like, you know, my business, my child, right. my recovery and giving back. Right. Like, you saw me in that sober living environment. Like, yeah. That consumed me. Everything has to be balanced. Exactly. Everything in moderation, everything in balance. Yeah. Even if it's something good, you can do too much. Oh, yeah. Because then it harms yourself. When you're giving everything you have away, you have nothing left for yourself, and it becomes imbalanced. And then you are the one that suffers. But you did a good thing out there with that house. That was great. Well, thank you. I mean, hopefully at some point you'll be able to do it again. I hope so, too. Is that desire still in you to do that again? It is. I don't think that will ever go away. Mm -hmm. I just think from the experience of it and raising a child i think it would definitely be something that i would have to do from the outside because when i was living in the house and i was wearing about four or five hats in the house i was the director i was the house manager but 
And you're the counselor of these people. Right. But then I was their their friend too. You know, there are a couple of girls in there that I instantly clicked with. That's a lot. That became like sisters to me right away. And so then it's like, it's really hard to then put on the director role when, you know, rules are being broken. Right. And there's some disrespect going on and, you know, they're just mouthing off at me as a friend, but I'm the director of the, you know, it was too many cross lines. But I'm I'm assuming a good experience for the future. Yeah. Because if you can go back into that environment with the team, like you as a director, maybe, and a team of people to play different roles and different hats and with capital from a better person funding it, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly. That could be a whole different outcome. Yeah. Let me get yeah. this money real quick. And I think the it was the experience of doing it all myself that I think was the best experience that I could have 100%. needed because I know exactly what to look for. Right. Now you can now you can lead that team right. that you deploy back into that yeah. because you know you've worn all the hats. Mm-hmm. So you can say, "Hey man, I did that. You can't try to tell me I've done it." Yeah. I think experience it's is key. It's different when you learn in a classroom or actually sure. in real life. Man, how many people go you know they teach entrepreneurship in colleges now? Really? It's a real thing. Okay. Not to knock anybody that's in that, but like, how are you going to teach somebody to do something that's literally unteachable? Yeah. Like, go build something for yourself. We're going to teach you. If it's not in you, it's not in you. Mm-hmm. I'm very cynical about teaching people to be entrepreneurs. Like, yeah. you, either, you are or you aren't, and you may uh, have a little bit in you, but like, to take a class for it, the the fact alone that you would take a class to teach you to be an entrepreneur says you're not an entrepreneur to me. Yeah, for right? me, I couldn't learn that way. Like, if someone's going to school, like, to learn how to play basketball, like, you're probably not a basketball player. If you don't have an <laughs> internal desire, you're like, well, I'll take a class. Yeah. Maybe it's a hobby for you. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah, that's weird. Cause Isn't no, that crazy? For, for me, I mean. They didn't have that. But even when I was trying to go to college, that was not an option. No. Just with this, this big boom recently of, like, entrepreneurship is cool and business, internet, and I don't know. You but you teach, you're teach somebody like your way of running a business. Exactly. Like, Everything. That's not how it goes. Oh, no. You know this. Yeah. So that's why I'm so cynical towards it. I'm like, that's ridiculous. You poor yeah, kids. I don't like Dumping that. more money into the debt system no of kidding. college. That's another podcast. Well, I mean, I'm going to talk about college soon because I have some strong opinions. Yeah. I'm not a big supporter of modern day college. I'm just not. It's a big. They just want to create debt. They, they don't want to create debt. They want to make money, which in turn creates debt, which provides no benefit to 99% of people because we don't live in the day where the college degree weighs anything. Right. Hello. And that's the thing. They're actually telling kids that at a young age, like you don't need a college degree. But it's going to take a while for people to finally be like, I don't need to go to Texas A&M and Texas yeah. Tech and UT and UTD. Like people got, it's so ingrained in us that like we got to go to these schools and that's the next step that it's going to take a while for people to realize like, oh wait, <laughs> Places are just like big Walmarts for colleges. Just yeah, take no your, all your money and then grow big. Well, I remember when uh, we first started our divorce and he was wanting to put uh, Chloe in the Hockaday. What's that? A private girls' school in Dallas. Oh, really? And I was like... What do you think about that? Oh, well, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> that did not go down so well. Well, it didn't go down, did it? No, not at all. Absolutely not. And I was <laughs> teaching in Frisco and he was doing whatever he wanted to. And, you know, he could drive her to and from school. And that just was not something that... It wasn't feasible. Huh? It wasn't feasible. But not only that, that was definitely not what she needed at that time. 
You know, we're talking about going through divorce for a year and a half and then throwing her into a private school in Dallas. But she, that's not the kind of families that are down there. Nope. We actually got her a therapist and the therapist was the one that said to me. Not a good idea. Definitely not. She said, you know, you live in Frisco. You work in Frisco. Frisco ISD is one of the best public schools out there. You guys all live around here. Why is he pushing this? Well, because we have a friend who has a kid that goes down there and it's a great school. And yeah, it's the image. The image of my daughter goes to a private school in Dallas. Not what's best for her. And it wasn't People until... People got to quit using their kids for oh, their own self-worth. It is horrible. It's He's exactly use his daughter is. for his own self-worth. Without a doubt. And it to was, her detriment. Yeah. And it wasn't That's until sad. we had a psychiatrist basically sit down and say... She is going to be a black sheep down there, and it's for not sure. going to be good for her. It is what it is. Yeah. Right, wrong, or indifferent. That's how it is. And, I mean, can you? she doesn't even go around kids who come from divorced families. Like, she's already singled out. Throw her to the wolves. So put her in a public school system where it's all mixed, right. and there's people from different countries and different lives and different homes. And It's not necessary. She's never been happier. Good. It was the best decision good. we ever made. I'm glad. And it's free. Yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we pay taxes, so it's yeah. not fully free. But yeah, the paid schools, I mean, yeah. it's sometimes not the Take best. advantage of it. Right. If it's free, take advantage of it. Yeah. Kindness is free, and so is public education. So you say you went to a private school? I went to a Christian school, which was private, for a year, two years, one or two years. Mm-hmm. Very foggy. When I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, for a small period of time. Yeah, it didn't go down well. You didn't? No, some terrible things happened. My sister's story is part of that. And not a good experience. Just paying for a label for your schools doesn't guarantee you anything. Right. People can stamp Christian or private or whatever they want on something. It doesn't make it good for you. Right. You know? I know plenty of, this is way off topic, but there's plenty of church-going Christian people that are not doing the right thing. Like, the way you live your life, your actions speak louder than words would be the best way to say that type of stuff. Private school means nothing if you're still a bad person. Mm -hmm. Church means nothing if you still live however you want. Uh, Sobriety means nothing if you are still a jerk. I mean, it means something. At least you're not using. But to your point, like, being sober or being a dry drunk or not using, if your life is still in shambles, it's still in shambles. Right. You're still wrecked. You're still wrecked. You're just a better version of a wrecked you. You're not the worst. Unless you get help in recovery and figuring out, it's the behavior that has to change. Correct. It's not just you remove yourself from a situation because there are bad things there. And then all of a sudden you don't drink or you don't use and you're cured. No, that's not how it works because we will then act out in other ways. Sure. Let's find the next thing. I have watched it happen time and time again. Still to this day, I know a few people that are doing this and they don't see it and it's not my place to point it out. Love from a distance and maybe give them a hint here and there that that might not be a good idea. Because you can't change people. But you start acting out in other ways. You don't drink, you don't use drugs, but yet you're still using men. You're still using women. Those are big addictions. Like, hello. Relationships is a huge addiction. You're still going out of your way to hurt people from your past. It's a deeper. Because you haven't gone through that resentment. Right. You're doing the exact same thing. You're just not drunk and high. Right. It's the same root (laughs) cause that caused you to drink, but now you're just 
deploying it somewhere different towards this new guy or this new girl. And then you're going to have the emotional hangover now of you, all this Right, stuff now you're making day. it worse for yourself because breakups leave you in a worse place. Man, I man, I think that people, I think people today have a huge, just people, not every person, but our our generation and the younger generation has a relationship addiction, mm-hmm. and it's so easy now. We got apps on our phone that will find us a boyfriend in an hour. <laughs> That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, relationships should be handled with care, like a glass package. This is fragile, and we're just like, brum, 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 next, 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 next. And then people wake up and they're like, I don't know. They got all kinds of problems. And I won't even go down that road. But I know a lot of people that have mountains of problems. And they've never touched drugs or alcohol. But they were addicted to that, whatever that feeling that relationships gave them. Codependency. And it's because they have deeper rooted issues. So they need someone there to make them feel good. Just like we use drugs and drink to make us feel good. Again, it's the same. It's the same story. It's the same thing. People aren't as complicated as we all think. No. We can be <laughs> We're all real alike. Yeah. Like we're all unique in our own ways, but like on a level, like when you look out and you see a pack of zebras, all those zebras are different. And I'm sure there's like Fred and Jerry and John, but <laughs> Fred and Jerry or John are obviously zebras. Humans the same way. Like we all got our own issues and everything, but like God's looking down like guys, you're like all pretty much the same. You're all doing the same <laughs> dumb stuff. Like, come on. <laughs> No, I agree. I'll let y'all run around and figure it out. Yeah. Going back to that one point, though, that you said that uh, you said that lady asked you if you had ever gotten anything that you prayed for. Remember that? And you prayed that you would not. You just said it. God, I don't want to die. Yeah. So So your prayer was answered. I, so did you go back to her and say, I did. I do have this one thing where I didn't die. I remember like thinking back to that prayer and I was like, I remember saying like, I was very close. Uh-huh. I had a bottle. I, in my bedside table, I had vodka rum and I had two bottles of pills. Might as well had a gun. So yeah, pretty much. And that was it. It was, it was just like, and there's Chloe. It was the only thing that stopped me. Not nobody else in this world. And that is another thing that I try and share to people about, you know, just finding something in you to keep you going because I've, I've met quite a few people, even a close family member who was just instantly handed over her kids for drugs, not a thought in the world. And I hear it all the time. I listened to a speaker meeting the other day and he was like, nobody could keep me sober. Not my kids, not my mom, not my brother, no one, nobody could keep me sober, but she kept me from killing myself without a doubt. Thank God. I am alive today because of her and, uh, I found that out through therapy too. <laughs> um, because that was another thing. Once I got sober for a little while, um, you know, I wanted to get off a lot of the medication that I was on. And I remember um, a psychiatrist, he actually said, you know, I'm really, I was just about four months sober. And I think he said, you know, I'm not underestimating everything, anything that you're doing in your sobriety and everything, but you're not taking care of the one thing that almost took you out. And that's the trauma. And you need to see someone and talk to her about it. And I was like, well, if I just go to someone and tell them what happened to me, then I'm going to be prescribed all these meds and, you know, given all these other, like, I need somebody that understands addiction also. Right. And I found the perfect person and they talked me through that. And apparently... Was it an addiction counselor? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And she specialized in trauma. Man. Yeah. And I went and saw her every week and she was the one that helped me identify because I kept saying, I don't know why I'm alive today. And she was like, well, questions aren't faith. We hear that a lot, right? That's good, right? 
And she was like, well, and then I explained the situation. She was like, well, close your anchor. And she was like, you need to just be grateful every day that you have that. She, right. You have no idea how many people don't. Right. And I wasn't really like immersed in the whole community, recovery community, seeing the people like in the trenches like I was when I moved up there. And um, yeah, I never realized how many people just, they don't have any connection to their own kids. And Some I people don't have any dad. connection to anything. Yeah. That's that's the scary thing is that why the reason people are dying all the time is not because pills are available. It's because they don't have anybody or anything to stop them. It's this complete disconnection from everything. Right. That's why we have to be it sounds so cheesy, but like we have to be the change we want to see. Mm-hmm. If you refuse to go out outside of yourself, that's selfish. That's super selfish. That's yeah. Right? That's yeah. So thing. I remember laying in bed and praying and praying that I didn't want to die. But I remember saying, I need help. I can't do this on my own. And I think I just cried myself to sleep and then they showed up. And so clearly I couldn't do it on my own. Answered prayer. And she is a very strong woman of faith and has always been sharing that with me and trying because that was another thing that after that happened to me i had no faith whatsoever i had to find my own higher power of my own understanding again this time around and i don't think i even really got that until i was in salina and um you know that was a struggle i was like i'm praying to something that i don't believe in because why would all these things be happening to me if this was real but you know we have our own ways of working through that but yeah that was that was my my prayers were answered that day and they helped save my life because I, I wouldn't have been able to get there by myself. He had to carry me to the car. Because <laughs> your legs weren't working. Wheelchair me into the facility. That's humbling, isn't it? sat with me for seven hours until I got to bed. That's humbling, huh? Yeah. Change and you know, they kicked me things. out too. I <laughs> Wait, what? I didn't even want to leave. Pause, hold up. My, my insurance ran out. Oh, I, I was in rehab with a lot At of people that days, happened to. They were... Super telling me you have to go and i was like no i'm not ready man they were like man we've done everything we can yeah. like i had to really argue with your insurance company well the the issue was was that i was wanting to go in there to really get help mm-hmm. well my dad and jennifer had also been in you know in charge of the admissions process and it put me in on detox mm-hmm. well that's only what three five seven days is that all your insurance cover so it stopped at seven and I'm like, no, I'm not ready. I need a few more weeks of this. Like, I'm safe. I'm happy. I'm walking again. Like, you know, I need to get more of this. sad is that happens a lot. When I was in rehab, a lot of dudes got discharged because they, they, there was no nothing to pay for them. Yeah. And they were not ready to go. Yeah. And I don't know it what happened to them. Rush but. discharge. It's a, there, I know that there's people now, though, and I don't know if you know. You probably know more than I do. I know they're pushing for, uh, they're pushing for like, uh, legislation that would make it way easier for people to get into treatment centers and facilities to help them. Yeah. Like, like Cause a lot of times in Washington that we have to have that. Like the fact that no one's going to foot this bill. So this person dies. That's, that's insane. That's freaking insane. So is your, I don't even want to go to that. I'll get mad. No, there are a lot it's of insane. people that get turned around for yeah. many, for but they're going to die reasons. But yeah. They're going to die. Well, that's the so thing. A, at this point, you're like, not just dealing with an addiction. The, somebody's got to foot the bill. Right. We can't just kick them out. But I've I've seen it where it's like, you know, you've got these people coming in, they want to get clean. But nine times out of ten, they've got mental health issues going on too. Right. So when they have finally got the courage to take themselves to get help right. 
and then everybody says no. Yeah. What do you think their head's going to do? That's it. They're, they're worthless. They're done, right? They're, they're, I tried. Right. It didn't work. And how many? I, I and mean, I'm you done. probably know a million stories. I know a million stories of the, I tried. Mm-hmm. And that's And it. no one was that's there. It? Yeah. Yeah. That's all it takes. It's sad. This is a community effort. It is. Well, I, life is a freaking community effort. You freaking ding dongs. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> This is why everyone says I'm just yelling and ranting all the time. But I'm like, this is basic. We're all humans. This is a community effort. At church today, they were talking about a couple who, God bless them, they were newlyweds. And they had heard that there was a need for foster parents. They were like three months. They were newlyweds. They'd barely been married a few months. And they took in three foster kids. Wow. And I thought that was amazing because I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. We have to be willing to help people. We're so, Americans are so stuck in their selfish ways. I told somebody this the other day. We have been blessed with so much, it's become a curse. Mm. I believe that 100%. We have so much that now it's become our curse. That now we're so comfortable with having whatever we want and being comfortable. That now our curse is that we're so comfortable. Yeah, I get it. We don't want to help other people. It's uncomfortable. In other countries, they move as a unit because they have nothing. Mm-hmm. I heard a statistic from a guy that's doing work in Uganda. He said in Uganda, 63% of people don't have access to clean drinking water. Wow. A lot of them urinate, go to the number two, and get their water from the same source. Lovely. There's kids dying from diarrhea and from stomach bacterias. And we're over here like, oh, Instagram. Oh, she's mean. Come on, like, wake up. Are you kidding me? I have to admit, like, at times I'm selfish too, for sure. But we have we have to reset ourselves. Like, everyone's going to have a moment of selfishness. But a lifetime of selfishness, that's a problem. Yeah. And that's what we have is people living life decades of selfishness. Well, I think it's sometimes it, you, you just kind of need to step out yourself a little bit. To Absolutely. realize that, you know you're not just the center of the universe and it's 7.7 7 billion of us you know i have to do it with my you can't even count to sometimes that. when she's sitting there whining about things and i'm just like you don't thank god you're still any here though clue outside of frisco texas <laughs> how much people are struggling in the world right and you know i try and just use you know my upbringings to you know just when she's disrespectful when she mouths back and when she complains about all these you know, luxuries that she has that she might not have access to right now. And I'm just like, man, if I spoke to my mom the way you talk to me, like (laughs) I'd be in jail because I would get (laughs) spankings. Like I'm not allowed to lay my hand on you. I just got to threaten you now, you know? That's a weird time we live in. It's just crazy. But like the stuff that they get away with and they whine about things and I'm just like, there are people dying out there. There are people, you're complaining about which fast food restaurant you want to go to tonight. Like, I'm sure that, that's a pretty common one. Perspective, please. You know, Popeyes is out of their sandwich. Oh God! I'm sorry, Jack. <laughs> I'm sorry. Why don't you drive away in your Benz and go to Wendy's? Let me guess. That was another one of the things that you did't want to get on the bandwagon for. No, I have never no. had a Popeyes chicken sandwich. <laughs> I'm I don't not, think I have not either. Not interested. No. Not interested. We were talking about that before we turned the mics on. About the, oh, that's right. Yeah. I don't hop on these bandwagons of like, oh, we're doing the 10 year challenge. Cool. I won't be participating. Oh, we're doing the old face app. Not in it. Won't be me. <laughs> if everyone's going to do it, I'm not interested. <laughs> like, I'm not. I've always been that way. I've never been someone. That's, like, even high school, like, I just, I didn't put forth much effort to be cool. I just didn't care. 
and I I think that comes ba- goes back to like my parents like put a lot of self esteem in me like good and and uh, then you you can lose that though I really think you can lose your self esteem when life happens because when I was using I had no self esteem yeah. otherwise I would have not been doing it but life will hit you in the face mm-hmm. and so like sometimes we get a false sense of like comfort comfortability and like self esteem with like we we are okay with how we are we're good with things. Like nothing can really rock this boat yeah. until this until a wave until comes. Until it does. <laughs> Being comfortable yeah. is dangerous. It is. Uh, you know, I, I felt like that for a long time, where I just i I put my focus on my self worth in materialistic things for the longest time. It happens. But that was kind of how that was a lifestyle I lived with the person that I was with, and that was all I knew. And I didn't realize that it was killing me until it started killing me. And once I gained the independence of just, you know, being on my own, I really found out then, like, how you just said, how you can lose your self-esteem. Like, I thought I was confident and I'm a social butterfly. Well, I had a drink before I even went anywhere to get that confidence. Right. And then so I, said, like, it's a, it's I had a false to put confidence. on this face because everybody thought that we're this perfect happy family so i have to go outside and portray that to the world because god forbid they find out we're not perfect you know what is really going on behind closed doors in this house that everybody loves that is like a prison to me and then it was like once i was out and then sober like whoo like i was terrified to find out who i really was i hated myself no self-esteem no self-worth I didn't know how to love anybody except my kid and my dog. And I didn't do a very good job at either of those. You do now. Now I do. Yes, that's true. But it took a long time to get there. And it took a lot of, you know, falling. And I think, you know. Experience is the best teacher. It is. And, you know, this was a topic in another meeting I went to. And it was saying about how. And randomly, Chloe asked me this last night. And she asked if I'd ever relapsed. Really? Her vocabulary, living in a sober living. And I told her the truth. And I said, yeah, I actually first got sober when you were not even four, three and a half. And um, and she was like, but you're sober now. And I was like, yes, I've been sober most of your life. You're good. <laughs> but <laughs> Someday uh, you'll be able to know the difference. Yeah. Thankfully, she has no memory of that from good. what I know. She does remember a couple of years ago when I had a seizure Mm -hmm. because it was just us at the house and I actually fell and hit my head on the pool table and she she, yeah she called uh my boyfriend at the time and said hey mommy's on the floor and her eyes are rolling and she's shaking can you come home that's traumatic it was and she but she calls it a panic attack she says that she remembers when I have a panic attack and she called Eric and she called Tony and she knew the right thing to do. And I told, cause at that time, like I did teach her how to use my phone. I said, you know, I'm struggling with some things and I don't know when it's going to happen. I'm doing everything I can to get better, but just in case this is how you call someone. So thankfully she knew what to do. Um, but you know, we're, we were talking in a meeting about how, you know, relapse is not a requirement. Right. But at the same time, like, I don't think I'd be as strong as I am today if I didn't Without have it. that experience. Everybody's because journey if this is different. was my first time, I think I would be either walking on eggshells everywhere I went or I would just be on a pink cloud and then just like it did because my relapse as much as I knew I wanted to drink. I yeah. wanted to numb. That was it. I was done. 
fuck this. I'm out. Like, let's just go get hammered. I don't want to feel anymore. Right. That was my goal. And I achieved it. Right. I set out to do what I did and I did it and I did it well. <laughs> Perfect execution. Exactly. But at the same time, like everything that followed for that was part of my plan. I really believe that now. As much as I hated everything that I went through, it's made me a better parent. It's made me a better friend. It's made me a better sister, daughter, cousin, whatever you want to call it. Because Experience. it's made me stronger but not only that, like, I think it set me up for more success this time around because of how bad it got. And we read about it all the time, you know, like every time you go back out, it's worse. It's worse. Of course. I remember having this sit down conversation with a mentor of mine and even my therapist said the same thing to me. And I was like, I'm scared of something else out there for me. Like, I don't know if I've had my rock bottom yet. And I remember sitting on the couch in my Oxford house and she was like, honey, do you have a shovel? <laughs> and I was like, no. And she was like, well, you can go out there and dig one. You can go find another rock bottom. You can go out there and make it real bad. Just walk out that front door right yep. now and go right. do it. Right. Or yours can be bad enough for you. Yeah. And quit trying to compare it to everybody yeah. else. Because here I am going to all these meetings, hearing about all these people that have lost their kids, that have been homeless. Like, thankfully, I never got to that point. Right. You know, I always had a roof over my head, even if it was staying with other people. I never really lost Chloe. I mean, I had to keep her away from me when I was really bad. Sure. And thankfully, we had family that would help with that. But... It didn't get as bad as other people did. But then it wasn't until I had the reality of like, okay, but how is it for you? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you anybody know? else went like, through. Look at what you have to live with for the rest of your life. And it wasn't until my counselor really said like, wasn't waking up with a stranger on top of you enough. Right. And that was the boom that it took. And I'm like, done. Right. That's it. I'm because never going to question We get it into again. these comparison games. Mm -hmm. I did too. Man, these guys really way worse than me and this happened way worse that's not my story right it's not my story when i remember what am doing i gonna that? do try to purposely write the same story as someone else did you ever do that when you first got like into reading the books and the stories and stuff like that? well i wasn't that bad all the time <laughs> but, <laughs> Until I, you I realize that you but in a different way i was almost like i felt guilty that i didn't that it wasn't as bad for mm -hmm. me you know, like to your point, I was never homeless. Yeah, I, I didn't have, I didn't endure certain things that other people did. So sometimes, at the beginning, not anymore. Yeah, but at the beginning, I felt guilty. I was like, man, like, almost. It sounds crazy. I almost felt like I, I didn't do a good job as an addict. Yeah, like I was a bad <laughs> addict. Like I was too good of an addict. Like I had one person tell me a few years ago. Um, this just this thought came to me. She she told me she said she she knew something about my story, and she was like well, then you're not a real addict. And she had a terrible story. And I was like, and I had to talk to some people after that because I was yeah. like, what do you mean? And and then it had me questioning myself like, man, like I knew what I went through, but I was like, man, should I, you know, should I even be involved in any of this? Am I just, you know. Where's this addict script that I should right, have been like, following? Right, it messed with me. And I like, I didn't, I didn't know why, I didn't know what, but it messed with me. Cause I, I, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and then my, and I was reminded, and my dad reminded me of this. He's like, Kyle, you know what you went through. Mm -hmm. Remember what you went through. Like if it's a level 10, your level 10 doesn't have to be somebody else's level yeah. 10. It was as bad as it could get for you. And I was like, 
Yeah, you're right. It was horrible. Yeah. Never mind. Never mind. I was good well, at it. And that helped me help a lot of other people too because I had a lot of young girls in the house that were comparing themselves. You know, we would have, you know, some of them phasing up in their program and, you know, stuff like that. And it was like, well, so-and-so is doing this and so-and-so is doing that. And I'm like, this is an individualized recovery. Yeah. You are not on the same playing field as anybody else. I was like, I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you come from. It doesn't matter. Like, it's your, your recovery. Your recovery is your recovery and you can't compare. But had I not had somebody tell me that, I wouldn't be able to tell somebody else that. You have to be because reminded of the I truth. Because I had to, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had to be called out for comparing myself yeah. to other people to be able to share that with right. others. And we do it outside of recovery. Mm-hmm. We get on our, our phones here. And we compare ourselves that we're not as good as other people. Mm-hmm. We compare ourselves down as addicts, like I wasn't as bad as that. And then we compare ourselves up and we're like, well, I'm not as good as that. Comparison is a dangerous game to it play. Is. Whether you're sober or not, whether you're an addict or not, comparison is a dangerous game because you always lose. You never win. Never have you compared yourself to someone and won that game. No. It's just, you'll never win the comparison game. It's very dangerous. Self-sabotage facts do you have anything do you have any like final last thoughts anything that you would you think could be helpful to people anything from your story resources an inspirational quote <laughs> i mean i got a lot <laughs> of things that could be helpful for people but we'd be here all night no don't no pick your top two or so what do you think you know me i just keep it basic be nice be kind yeah i think the biggest thing that has helped me lately that I try and help others with is, um, and it's kind of cliche, like in the AA rooms and whatnot, but from me, I have been working really hard on acceptance Mm. of not just who I am and what I have to deal with on a daily basis. Cause every morning I wake up with the same problems and I go to bed with the same problems and I have to face the same struggles most days. Some days are great, some days not so much. But for me, it has been very helpful lately to just accept everybody for who they are. Not just yourself and just be kinder to yourself, but don't judge other people. Like, meet people where they're at is my biggest thing because you don't know what people are going through. It's not your job to change people, it's your job to love people. Exactly. It's not your job to judge someone for what they're going through. And to compare in any way, right. like you're, you're, oh, you think you've got it bad? Well, listen to this. Like, no, you don't have to trump somebody else's story. And is that ever helpful? <laughs> have you ever made someone feel small and that helped oh, them? I cannot tell you how many people would, you know, it's like. Talk you know, down to you, right? Oh, yeah. You have no idea. You have no idea. Thanks, John. Now yeah. I feel like a, I hate myself. Thanks. I won't sorry, share man. anymore. Yeah, I'm so sorry. But, you know, just definitely acceptance of other That's people good. has been a good thing because it takes the focus off of me. For me personally, I had a lot of anxiety and fear over what people were going to do to me, how they were going to act around me, how I was going to be accepted as, you know, now I'm in recovery. What are people going to think? I'm right. very outspoken about recovery. I'm very passionate about it. I have a yep. lot to say. And I'm alive because of a a lot of things that I have changed in my life. And I want to share that with other people. Right. As you should. But at the same time, I think that it is pretty vital to be accepting of other people exactly how they are. And that for me has helped me because there are a lot of people that still cause pain in my life. 
and cause pain to the people that I love. I've watched some pretty scary things happen to my daughter lately. And it is nothing that I can do about it. Absolutely nothing. Can't control it. Can't change it. Can't cure it. Didn't cause it. You Gotta know? accept like, it. All of that. So I just have to accept that person, place, thing, whatever it is. Yeah. For it being exactly how it's supposed to be for whatever reason. Right. And just stick to my side of the street. And that's been the biggest thing that has really helped me keep from wrapping myself around the axle, as I like to say. Because it's it it, Real, it will make me spiral out of control. Yeah. Especially like Mama Bear comes out. Whoo. Like you didn't see me back in those days, but nope. I mean I, I was not my there was no fuse. Yeah. Like I would go off at the drop of a hat and it would end badly. And now, thankfully, I have so much more peace in my life. But it's that acceptance of being like, okay, you are exactly how you're supposed to be for whatever horrible reason it is that I don't understand right now. And I disagree with. But I tell you what, nine times out of ten, there has been some time that has passed and I've looked back on it. There's a lesson out of it somewhere. That's what you were saying earlier. There is a lesson that I've learned because of it. And it's made me stronger and it's given me something that I can use to help somebody else. So don't judge people, accept people for who they are. And if someone's pissing you off, just let them be. Right. Accept them for who they are. Cause you know right. what? You haven't met them where they're at. If you're right. judging them, it's facts. You don't know what they're going through. And you may, and even with your situation and me too, I meet people all the time. But I, I may disagree with you a hundred percent. I may not d agree with the choices you're making. I know you don't agree with the choices some people are making, but that doesn't mean you can't meet them where they're at. You can still love them and meet them where they're at and disagree with their choices because you don't have control of that portion. Yeah. You have control of how you're going to interact with them. If you're going to meet them there, you don't have control of whether or not they're going to do what you think they should do. Yeah. That's part of acceptance. No, that's is accepting huge. I'm so they glad won't you always said that. do what you think they should do. No, I'm glad you said that though, because that was the biggest thing for me. Because when and my sponsor and I, there's been so many times where she's just the first thing is acceptance. Whenever I come to a problem with her, because it's like if I don't accept that person, place, or thing for who for what it is, then this is the path I go down every time. It's don't not torture an option. yourself. Yeah, there's not. They're not going to change. They're not going to stop. No. But you can. Yes. But the thing was You're for me. You're in control of this. I thought that if I was accepting it, that that, mean, that meant that I was agreeing with it and co-signing it. No. And that realization of I can still hate it. I can still be 100% against it. And I yeah. can vent through inventory. Thank you, hallelujah, for inventory. It saved my life on it so many times. I hate it. But do you really? I hate it. Oh, I could, it's a very good way of me getting stuff out. Good. I'm glad. Um, but yeah, just realizing that I don't have to agree with it. Like, it's not okay. Some of these things that are going on right, right now that I have to accept. That's my point. Are illegal. Right. And you don't have child to agree abuse. With it. Like, that shit is not okay. You don't have to agree with but that. But for my own sanity and accept for me it. to stay on path, I have to accept it yep. and not judge them for it. Right. Because hurt people hurt people, man. That's it. Yeah, there's nothing That's you it. can do about it. I'm going to end it on that. Yeah. <laughs> hurt people hurt people. Thanks for coming on, man. This was great. This was awesome. Love people don't hurt people. Say it again. Love people don't hurt people. Don't be part of the problem. Thanks for being on Inside the Mirror. Thank you for having me. I love it. I love it too. I'm <laughs> Kyle David. 
See you next time. Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for giving me your time and listening to this podcast. I hope it's helpful for you. If it is helpful for you, and if it isn't helpful for you and you hate it, either way, please do me a favor. Click one through five stars wherever you're listening. Leave me a review and give me some feedback so I can make this the best podcast possible for you. Thank you so much.